0: welcome to inside the rope the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management i'm your host david clark and in this episode i'm excited to be speaking to rob tucker the portfolio manager and founder of chester asset management we talked to rob about the formation of his investing thesis that was shaped in asia and influenced heavily by his grandfather, who was named Chester, that the uh, strategy is named after. We talked to him about his remarkable success that he's had in being able to, since inception, eke out gains of just over 15% per annum with a lot of downside protection. He talks about why that's important. I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I did. Please remember that this podcast, Podcast is not specific advice nor general advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also make their own inquiries and read all offer documents, etc., before considering any investments. Please do keep your feedback coming to me. I really enjoy that. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I look forward to receiving that and keep it on coming. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. Rob Tucker, welcome to Inside the Rope.
1: David, thanks for having me.
0: Not a problem. I'm really excited. You're joining us from uh, down in the great state of Victoria and Melbourne today. So we'll try to make do with the audio quality we get over Zoom today. But perhaps you could kick us off with letting the listeners know who is Rob Tucker.
1: Yeah, uh, look, thanks for the opportunity to have a, a chat with you. So um, I've been in markets for uh 22 years. I started at Merrill Lynch on an intern program after probably having a little bit of trial and there in the industry in my 20s and then really found I loved markets in the late 20s. So that's sort of when I joined the finance industry. <clears throat> in fact, my first day at Merrill Lynch was the morning after the NASDAQ crashed 17% in April 2000. Uh, I remember it well because I started as a Merrill Lynch uh, small cap tech assistant and I watched stocks go from $10 to stop trading within 12 months.
0: Yeah. The dot-com, uh, the at, dot-com crash. I, I can remember yeah. that. Um, yeah. I was working as an analyst in corporate finance. Well, that was going on. We had a transaction in that dot-com space that was keyed. The valuation was keyed to the NASDAQ and that deal fell over and I thought, gee, this isn't a very good game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that was my introduction to markets. Um, And then I went from Merrill Lynch, the the sell side, uh, and found a job on the buyer side. I think my personality was probably more attuned to being slightly introverted and slightly more uh, adept at sort of sitting there, analysing companies. And I like the concept of actually physically making the investment decision rather than just talking about it. So um, I joined HSBC shortly after my experience at Merrill Lynch. Uh, which was a lovely experience. It, it took me to Hong Kong for five years in the uh, late noughties, 2005 to the end of 2009. And so I really was, I think, privileged in a sense. that I saw China opening up to the world in that period. And uh, you know, I was doing some resources and uh, metals and mining uh, analysis at the time. So I was in China probably 43, 44 times for over a five-year period. So I, was, I really got to say a lot of, a lot of China that I'll never go back to in Tier 2 and Tier 3 cities. Um, but a wonderful experience in, in Hong Kong. And then uh, came back to join a boutique in Melbourne in 2010. I, I worked there as a junior partner for about seven years. And then we um, really thought, uh, with Anthony Kavanagh, my partner, we, we thought this is a um, a business model that really rewards uh, dedication and persistence. And, and we sort of thought we'd, we'd try it ourselves. And and in 2017,
0: that was, yeah. And were there any really large sort of moments that you look back on and say, these were some great wins and or some great losses that go into your thinking about how you invest today that you might be able to pull up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I think my experience in my formative days at Merrill Lynch was incredibly telling on my psyche of really not wanting to lose money because I just saw how much money wealth was eroded in that first 12 months in the markets. So it, it lends itself to thinking a little bit more in terms of valuation terms and assets on the balance sheet and things you can touch as opposed to some of the disruptive technology that we've seen be so successful over the last 10 years and then obviously has had some valuation challenges in the last 18 months. So that, uh, that sort of helped shape my thinking. Uh, being in China and just seeing the insatiable demand for certain commodities, i also also shaped my thinking. Commodities are a fascinating part of the market because they can reward you richly if you get them right, but they can also hurt you if you get them really wrong. So I like having the opportunity to own uh, commodities without uh, ever really investing too much of the portfolio's capital in that part of the market, but certainly a a great source of alpha. Um, And I guess the other point I'd make is through the GFC, uh, when I was at HSBC in Hong Kong, It was the gold part of the portfolio that really helped me weather the storm the best. And so I've always used that psychology of going, well, I'd rather be able to protect money in down markets and having some gold in the portfolio helps facilitate that outcome. Uh, It normally works well in really inherent volatility. So that's, I've always had a sort of small hedge in, in gold and gold equities, which I think helps the fund weather the storm in various markets. So that's sort of a few things that help shape my thinking about the way the portfolio is, is constructed.
0: Well, it's in really interesting. I, I find dealing with a lot of high net wealth individuals and their families and not-for-profits that, you know, people who have uh, created wealth, their attitude changes to it, to one that, that they become protectors and they're like little meerkats and the sensitivity, to losses and gains uh, isn't symmetrical. Um, and equally, so they should be in that you know, if you've got a portfolio and it goes down 50%, you don't have to go up 50% back to get back to where you were. Um, and it takes some people a little bit of time to realise that um, and, and that the analysis of downside and upside capture is really, really important. So it's a great point. To, to bring out there. So I think you flagged there that you came to 2017 and set up in Australia. W- were you running a, a portfolio prior to that, SGH or similar?
1: Yeah, so, so at SG Hiscock, we set up a fund uh, in 2013. And it was, really, it, it was born out of the fact that um, SG Hiscock already had three Australian equity funds, a large cap fund, a mid cap fund and a small cap fund. But I was very um, keen to continue my portfolio management career in my own right because I've been running a significant portion of money in Hong Kong at HSBC Uh, and so uh, Steve Hiscock at the time seeded a small fund um, and we called it Australia Plus which was sort of born of the notion that there was a rising middle class income in uh, Asia that we could tap into with a non-index position so an Australian equity fund that had a non-index position in Asia so it's a point of differentiation as an equity equity fund, so we we ran that, and that's that's the strategy we took to Chester. As we continued our journey, the, the the source of differentiation really was offset by the friction caused with consultants and how to place this portfolio in the overall balanced uh, allocation towards you know financial planners or model portfolios. So we found it more and more challenging to. Um, illustrate why the Asian sleeve was um, beneficial at all. And and I guess six years of running the strategy in that sense showed we hadn't actually produced that much alpha out of it. So really in early 2000, um, we made the decision to exit. It was always six or 7% of the fund and in names that you'd know, Alibaba and Tencent and these ideas, Um, but really we sort of paid back that exposure through 2020 And since then, it's really been a mid-cap Australian equity strategy. You know, tinkering on the edges in in Asia, which was a source of frustration for consultants about how to use this this fund in the overall portfolio context.
0: We had a slight glitch there that I think we we understood the meaning of what you're saying, so that's fine. Um, So you you come back to Australia, you set up um, Chester. Tell us about Chester. And why you said
1: that? Yeah, up. so yeah, so so look, Chester is it's uh, named after my grandfather. Um, his name was Chester Raymond Tucker, and Chester had a lifelong passion for investing. He gave me my first parcel of shares when I was eighteen, which was shares in the AFIC, the you know the listed unit trust, which I found to be a great source of understanding of how the Australian economy worked. Just looking at the Woolworths and the BHPs and the Telstra's and the banks that are in part of that unit trust, so I understood it. A little bit how the economy worked from that as an eighteen-year-old, um, but my grandfather caught the tram into the city till he was ninety-five. He just had an office and he loved investing and tinkering away and reading about markets and economies and um, and the like. So he had a lifelong fascination with it, which is why um, to me Chester. Well, it sounds a little bit English, obviously, but um, it was just a nice name to associate with my grandfather who. Was always very passionate about being self-made and and running your own business. So that was, I guess, just testing to his um, ambition.
0: What a lovely sentiment! And tell us about the track record that you've had uh, at Chester and th- and pursuing this strategy.
1: Yeah, so so our fund is very benchmark aware. Um, and I think we'd all realise that the Australian index has some challenges. It thirty two percent is kind of exposed to interest rate sensors, whether it's banks or financials or insurance companies, and about 30 odd percent is in materials or energy. So you've got by default an Australian index that is very macro, has a large macro overlay. So while you can't avoid macro thoughts and influence in stock, stock selection, uh, you can try and minimize it. So we have a very benchmark and aware strategy, happy to have some resources and some financials, but nowhere near to the extent of what the index does. So a benchmark and aware strategy where we're really trying to make money on an absolute basis. And so this strategy has been now running for nine years. Um, we started as as you said at, at SG Hitchcock in 2013, um, April, uh, October 2013. So over nine years now, and it's delivered fifteen point six percent compound returns over that nine year period, which is about seven point three percent. This is after fees um, above the market. So we've been obviously uh, thrilled with the alpha generation. But we touched on it before: protecting capital in down markets. I think is the best way to compound returns on a ten year time frame. So if you can minimise that drawdown. And then grow with the market and up markets i think that is generally the best way to provide superior terms on a 10-year time frame which is really how we try and think
0: and i think your your one-year number speaks to that i remember looking at it uh halfway through this year or a couple of months ago when markets the australian equities markets were at, at a low point they've rallied a little bit uh we're recording this just around christmas um what's the one number one year number as a reminder I think you might be up uh, something like nine percent
1: oh that, that would have been probably the end of September and I think October and November have been slightly tricky for the fund it has risen but the index has been led by the banks and the resources the last couple of months so I think over one year now we um, I think we're over up nine percent the market might be up four or something like that
0: so, Rob, I, I'm interested, you, you, you know, it's music to my ears when you talk about absolute return investing in a very uh, absolute return focus. But then I turn to how you calculate your performance fee. And I can't help but thinking people running money, it's a little bit like water. They go to where the performance fee is, what they're trying to do. Um, but the performance fee is a hurdle over the benchmark. Is there a reason yeah. why you wouldn't have made it an absolute return hurdle or, or, or you flagged The influence of research houses um, and then wanting to categorize things was it really the influence of research houses?
1: Yeah, I think you've just hit the nail on the head, David. It's really I think you have to um, fit yourselves into one of two buckets. So we are a relative return manager. It is a long-only product. We don't have the ability to short. Um, We can hold a little bit of cash as a sort of uh, a sort of a tool to kind of manage. So. Uh, that's about the only way we can mitigate real downside. So it's then trying to find some low beta stocks in a long-only context that might ride the um, a down market better than some other um, higher beta names. So it is long-only, so therefore it's a relative return and therefore the benchmark, You know, the ASX 300 Accumulation Index is probably the most appropriate benchmark to use. Um, again, it is a challenging one because I do think absolutely in returns. I'm trying to make you money. Investors can't eat relative returns. So um, thinking about how you make and compound returns over three to five year journeys, at what what gets us up every morning.
0: And can you tell us about how you think about constructing a portfolio, how many names you typically put into it, how you go about the process, please?
1: Yeah, so, so we, again, very benchmark aware, so CBA's nine percent index or BHP's eleven percent index. We don't necessarily hold them simply because they're a large part of the index. We hold stocks because we think we can make money out of them on a three to five year journey. So I have a very simple explanation for our benchmark and where capital allocation. Most of it is in stocks that are very predictable in their cash flow generation. So that is traditionally healthcare or infrastructure or consumer staples or paper and packaging. So that's that comprises about sixty to sixty-five percent of the fund in those sort of types of cash-generating industries. We're very happy to allocate to cyclicals, but on a very judicious basis because they are inherently volatile uh, uh, sectors. You know, the cash flows are volatile. So, fifteen to twenty-five percent of the fund is normally in cyclicals, and then, as I said, we probably think slightly differently than most because we have a small allocation to gold that's very consistent it's it's been between 6 and 7% of the fund. A bit less sometimes a bit more but it's on average and then a cash kind of notionally about 7 or 8% of the fund again i i say cash is just a little bit of flexibility so you only have to make one decision you can decide to buy something without having to make the second decision of what to sell to make that purchase. So I just like having a little bit of cash flexibility. Um, and so that sort of, I call it the predictable cash generators, the cyclical cash generators and the defensive bucket, which is cash and gold, because historically they're the most non-correlated sectors to the ASX 300. And so it's, it's quite simplistic the way I frame it, but that's sort of three buckets of how I think about allocating capital.
0: Can you talk to us a little bit about gold? I'm intrigued by that. You know, everything you're talking about there is pretty much music to my ears of of buying cash flow and future cash flow and companies with great future cash flow. Because if the market doesn't recognise the value, we're happy to sit on the cash flow and eventually it'll get there. However, it's a bit of a conundrum with gold because, of course, um, there is no income or there is no cash flow, um, and you know inherent value in it you know, many would argue is only there because of historical reasons. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that because I, I see that as slightly different into your thinking to that there are many other, you know, if you talk to Warren Buffett and those type of things, I'll say, you know, yeah. it's the future cash flow of everything that provides the value for it. And, and of course, gold's not going to spit out any
1: cash. No. So, so, so I understand the, there's atheists about the gold uh, <laughs> philosophy. I understand that completely. And it's normally around real interest rates, because theoretically you can note, have you know, interest rates you can generate a return on. So we invest in gold miners. And, and I guess my level of cynicism about fiat currencies has stemmed from really, you know, Alan Greenspan through the 2000 and Ben Bernanke in the GFC, then Janet Yellen and, and Jay Powell's trying to walk back some of this sort of uh, monetary policy largesse. Yes. Um, But I still sit here today thinking, I don't know when a Western government, or even China for that matter, is ever going to run a budget surplus again. So you've just had 20 years of budget deficits. Uh, And as far as I can see, I think that's the only way uh, societies are going to function by by governments running large budget deficits. So in that notion, I think you do need to think about having a store of wealth. And I know uh, 20, for 20 years, central banks were actually selling gold. But in the last 18 months, central banks have bought the most amount of gold on record. So I think there's, we, we're getting to a really interesting point about how gold reserves are perceived on central banks' own balance sheets. Because they're all issuing more currency. Um, that's what's gonna happen. So I would change my mind on having gold as a, a part of the portfolio. If I saw the US government ever run a budget surplus. So, if you can tell me when that happens, I'd uh, be fascinated. Doesn't seem um, to be the so foreseeable
0: think... future, does it? Now, you, you, no. you've switched us into some macro talking. Before we talk about some of the companies that you've been invested in the past and some of the that you're invested in the future and that you like, I do like the way that you articulate your macro view and where you're seeing things. Um, to what is on your shopping list and the type of companies and that methodology you go through. So I think it'd be wonderful if you could talk about what your view is and and sh- and talk to the listeners about how that shapes what you're what what you're looking to buy at the moment.
1: Yeah, so so I think probably post 2020, we're just with the monetary policy that uh, central banks entered into to stave off you know you know economics sort of. Um, as everyone was shut down through the pandemic. So you saw money supply go up 25% year on year. And that, to me, was always going to have an inflationary outcome. So, so when I think we are in a very different regime for the next five to seven, ten years, as opposed to the last 20 years of investing. where uh, So if I go back a step, when China entered the WTO, uh, the world exported deflation because we had cheap labour and a cheap source of manufacturing. And then we're buying cheaper and cheaper goods coming out of China and, and Southeast Asia. So, as we've uh, reached the limits of the Chinese workforce actually uh, being able to be really productive in the use of that labour, uh, their labour force is shrinking uh, and the wages demand are, going, are higher. And then we have the notion of um, localization. I think Trump sort of started as in sort of 2016, 17. the notion of actually running too big a budget uh, or trade deficit because we're importing too much stuff from from China. So that was the first salvo of actually bringing things mentally back on shore. And then that was accelerated with Russia uh, invading Ukraine this year. And certainly in Europe and the US, the notion of actually having security of supply of essential goods and services, I think far outweighs the lowest cost of supply of goods. And I'm thinking of things like rare earths, and obviously this is quite topical. Resource nationali- nationalism, having uh, graphite or lithium or cobalt onshore. Uh, so you're not relying on China or the Democratic Republic of Congo to, to provide your raw materials for so batteries. Um, semiconductors, you know, being sort of Intel of moving their uh, semiconductor facility out of Taiwan to the building some uh, large factories or foundries in, back in onshore in America. Uh, and, and Europe with the sort of um, energy security, so that they you know, have a lot of LNG receiving stations. So this all ties in notion that the cost of doing business, I think, is going to be higher in the next decade because you've got um, the carbon transition or the energy transition, which I think is going to have a meaningful capex cycle to it. It's just starting properly. Uh, the idea of uh, localization of, of supply chains, as i touched on. Um, and I think minimum wages, I think where there is a, genuine demographic shortage of uh the, the right working population as the aging demographics or shift so uh relying on 65 plus to enter the workforce and alleviate some of the you know the hospitality industry or the travel industry and some of these labor shortages that we are seeing, which is pushing up wages everywhere uh, I, I can't see a really medium-term solution to that so i think wages rising are very much part of my thought process in the next three to five years so therefore we have a notion that i think inflation is going to be structurally higher um, and now i think then that changes how you think about investing um, so i'll keep going and then uh, with the structurally higher inflation rate now this is a nuanced discussion because as we see today i can see why inflation decelerates very quickly in the first half of 2023 the rising interest rates in 2020 absolutely have made sure uh, goods inflation is going to be really structurally challenged next year. So that, I think there's some deflationary aspect to that. And if we look at some of the commodities, lumber, um, copper, a lot of these things are actually trade in 20, 30, 40, 50% below where they were this time last year. So you can see a reason why CPI decelerates the first half of 23, but I think remains structurally higher. So if you have inflation as a structural issue, um, then I think, think about portfolio construction, Um, and very simply, margin resilience in the earning streams that you're investing in companies with. So how do you have margin resilience when you've got rising costs? Um, You've either got unbelievably strong pricing, and this is very simple, obviously, or you've got really strong industry tailwinds that mean your revenue growth is above your cost growth or at least uh, equal with it. So margin resilience is, I think, the probably key focus for us over the next 12 or 18 months. And if you can find companies that have the ability to continue to generate cash flow um, and you're not overpaying for them, I think it's still... So I think we're still in a very um, value-ish type of world the next couple of years.
0: And and what do you mean by that value-ish... You're saying you're only willing to buy things if they present as very good value or it's hard to find those? Well,
1: well, I think uh, we had this just enormous tailwind for growth and momentum for 12 years. So post-GFC, where interest rates just kept on going down um, and we had a very deflationary uh, world that we're living in. Uh, investors and companies were rewarded for meeting and slightly beating expectations. And so you saw a lot of PE ratios just drift up from 20 times to 30 times to 35 to 40 times. So to me, that is very much a thing of the past. So some of the premiums you're seeing, some of the growth companies, I think are still probably too expensive. So I think that um, then leads itself to the only way you're going to get share price appreciation is actually just through earnings growth. Mm-hmm. So you can't rely, growth companies can't rely on, therefore, PE expansion, most likely going to suffer PE contraction. So, you know, there's obviously in a share price appreciation as earnings and PE rating. So I, don't, I think we, we lose the PE rate re-rating. So therefore, it's just the earnings that are going to drive share prices from this point. So, uh, so that then leads itself to being a slight headwind for growth-orientated growth orientated companies. Um, and then lo and behold, if you actually disappoint as a growth company in this environment, then you have the double whammy of the earnings greater and the P.E. derating at the same time. And that's what becomes really painful uh, and how you sort of um, can really destroy wealth pretty quickly.
0: Hence the volatility we're seeing in the small cap side. I know, I know one yeah. of the things, given your macro outlook that you're focusing on, is sort of real assets and things with asset backing and some of those hard assets, commodities, Mm roots, farmland, infrastructure and the like. I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit about that. And we've got a situation at the moment, correct me if I'm wrong, where, you know, property and, you know, industrial property particularly has just been on a tear. And, you know, at the end of last year, people were buying, you know, large industrial properties on a, you know, sub 4% yield and and right now you can pretty much get close to that from a term deposit you know we we, without the phone calls saying there's a rat in the drain pipe or a tenant vacating for two years so significantly less risk and it just strikes me that people are going to really demand a premium on top of that to deploy into an asset class with that amount of risk over a term deposit or similar but we really haven't seen that come through in the hard assets but we've seen the reits trade down about 30% if I'm right. Um, So you've got this, you know, the market sort of saying, Hey, we don't think these are worth those, those valuations haven't really, um, you know, all all of the large institutional investors haven't really marked to market quick enough, or there hasn't been enough data to do that. Um, How are you thinking about that type of position in the
1: market? You know, it's a really good question. I actually observe I mean, the Commonwealth Bank, the dividend is pretty much the same as the 10-year uh, term deposit or the 10-year bond rate. So you're getting very little uh, reward for the risk I think you're taking in Commonwealth Bank shares today, but that's another issue. Um, so in, in terms of the property sector, absolutely we saw the REIT space uh, really sort of mark-to-market mentally, higher cap rates. So suddenly... Um and I'll use Stockland as an example because we are, we hold Stockland and I'll, I'll explain the thesis. But you know, the cap rates on uh, REITs have certainly blown out in the last 12 months, or so that's what the listed market is implying. Um, but I still I think there's been some really interesting value on offer across certain uh REITs in the Australian listed space. And so we're very interested in Stockland, really below $3.50. Um The the published NTA of Stockholm is about $4.50 or thereabouts. But if you look at the balance sheet, there is a historical cost accounting to the land they're holding for future development. And that's been, most of it's been there for 10 years or more. So actually, if you said, well, I'm going to sell that land in today's uh, market context, the land would be worth 3.5 billion, it would be worth closer to 5.0 or 5.3, the last time we did the exercise. So you can actually see our adjusted NTA for Stockland would go from $4.50 to above, above $5.10 based on what if you just mark the market, the value of the land. And so when you're buying something below $3.50 on an 8.5% dividend yield and our adjusted NTA is 35% higher than that, I think that's a really strong margin of safety in terms of that investment. Now, clearly there's going to be some slippage in uh, the demand for these um stock and residential villages and, and how quickly they sell through at the moment but i guess we'd sit with the notion that we sort of this goes from the micro back to the macro but i think australia is still a wonderful place to invest on a 10-year view and that's led it's predicated on uh, immigration because I, feel, I still think we're going to have as a country demographic tailwinds with natural population growth and immigration uh, so I think at some point in the next two to three years, we'll find ourselves with a, a severe housing shortage again. Uh, and that leads itself to Stockland being really well-placed with their land bank. So I think you sort of have to probably take a two to three year view on some of these ideas, rather than thinking about what the next three months or the next quarter of, of sales looks like. Because um, clearly they're going to be softer, I think, the next three to six months. But if you can look through that, I think you can generate some really strong returns out of some of these REITs. That, Allowing for the fact that cap rates are going higher. Absolutely they are.
0: And Rob, would you perhaps be able to give us a, another example of a company that you like and how that fits into the sort of macro themes that you're trying to take advantage of?
1: Yeah, so uh, and we've, I mean, I've got 35 stocks in the portfolio, David, so I, I love them all. <laughs> um, But uh, one we've sort of been happy to buy over the last 12 months, and it's been really quite uh, a poor performer, is Sinlay Milk. So Sinlay is the infant formula manufacturer for A2. Well, that's what they're best known for. A2 actually owns 20% of Sinlay. And the market's been really concerned that A2 is shifting some of their volumes from Sinlay's factories. There's two of them uh, they own, Uh, they've spent $1.1 billion. Of capital doing those facilities, and A2 has their own facility in the South Island. So they're starting to take some volume, incremental volume off sinlay Now, the reason we're sort of more sanguine about sinlay as, a, as an opportunity is there's still a five year contract in place for sinlay to provide uh, A2 exclusively in Australia and New Zealand, and the Chinese label product they're selling in conformity to in China, which is where all the growth is coming from for A2. It's the Chinese label. And Sinlay holds the license that the manufacturing facility actually issue, gets issued the license and they actually have to have it renewed next year. It's a new ingredient, or new formulation, which is basically some more lactoferrin for Chinese babies because it, it's better for brain development. So the SAMR, the Chinese Food and Drug Administration, is going around the world issuing, reissuing licenses for the new ingredient so that, they're, they're, to me, there appears to be a perceived risk that Sinlay won't get issued a new licence next year, but I would, see, I would perceive that risk as actually being very low. So we think, still think sinlai is doing a lot of the A2 work for a significant period of time. One, they have the milk supply, and two, they have the, the licence issued for the Chinese label customer, where, Sinlay, where A2 in the South Island would spend probably five years actually getting their facility up to an audited standard and the uh, sustainability supply to then supply all the Chinese label product they need to into China. So I think Sinai still has a captive market or customer in A2. And then the reason we like it is because they have a new multinational customer starting in January. So customer, it's a large global FMCG player. They haven't named the customer for privacy reasons. And this is a, plant-based food supplement. So it's actually extracted from soybean, so not dairy. But Sinlay consistently said, this customer will be as big as, or if not bigger than A2 in the next three years. So that essentially says Sinlay did 117 million in EBITDA last year. And 2023 is a little transitional because the customer's gonna be ramping up. but as the customer's fully operational in 2024, we can see that a pathway to $180 million of EBITDA. They've spent all the growth capital, Sinlay. So there's only maintenance capital on these two plans, which is $25 to $30 million. Uh, and the tax will be $25 to $30 million as well, plus an interest. So we actually think there's a really strong pathway to have free cash flow after tax at Sinlay of around $100 million, let's call it $110 million. Um, and we're buying it as a $600 million company. So the valuation on offer with the growth, I think, is relatively baked in for Sinlay. Um, so to me, there's a really strong margin of safety in buying a company below asset backing uh, with what we can see as 40% EPS growth rate the next two years. So it's still on nine times FY24 earnings And if they do execute this new customer the way they think they can, and those earnings do transpire, uh, I think the nine times sort of drifts back to sort of 13 or 14 times, um, which is still not aggressive, but it's a dairy producer. So there is some volatility around production rates. Um, So we still think Sinai has a great two years ahead of it. Um, And we'll start paying dividend because it was very unloved because there's too much gearing on the balance sheet. Mm So I think that that gearing is now being alleviated because of the strong cash flow profile they have ahead of them.
0: And Rob, maybe uh, a little bit for our listeners about mineral resources, um, noting that sort of in that resources cyclical bucket, um, how are you thinking about that as an example of how that fits
1: into the macro landscape? Yeah, so, so we think, you know, um, MINS is one of the best founder-led companies um, that we've come across in our sort of 25 years of investing. So uh, Chris Ellison has run the company since 1996 and has been a wonderful allocator of capital uh, in the mining industry. So it started purely as a mining service uh, operator, crushing uh, iron ore tons for uh, external parties, BHP and, and Fortescue. And so then it started buying its own assets, iron ore, and then crushing tons for their iron ore assets, their own external contracts and internal contracts. And then they added lithium to the portfolio a couple of years ago, about four years ago. Um, And now they've just added a really, really large gas deposit in the Perth Basin. So he's a very strong allocator of capital. And so if you combine the mining service business, the iron ore business, the lithium business and the gas portfolio, um, there's a lot of ways to distill the information that Min's talk about but in essence, we've still we, we actually recently updated our valuation and with the gas portfolio um, and the opportunity ahead of that, we can see MINS being worth uh, well over $120 a share. And so it's a very, I guess the problem with MINS right now is the sentiment is very strong on it. So it's become a bit of a market darling. Um, so we're cognizant of that, but would still say the earnings growth Which, from the way we see it, is still going to surprise the market in terms of marking the market some iron ore pricing and some lithium pricing. They should have really strong upgrades next year, and the gas portfolio will sort of um, start creating an earning stream 2025, 26. So, you've really got this just long, obviously, cyclical companies like Mins can be short duration, i.e., there's volatility around the the iron ore price and lithium price. But there's such a pipeline of growth projects within that portfolio. It's been a um, core holding of ours for a long time and, and I think will continue to be so um, while it's still trading well below our valuation. Um, I could, again, go into a lot more detail with MINS, but that's a, a bit of a broad brush.
0: Oh, I think that's um, a, a good summary for the listeners. Changing yeah, gears a yeah. little, uh, if you could, of course, the fund, albeit an absolute return fund, doesn't allow shorting but are there any companies or parts of the market that you wouldn't go near and you're thinking that the market is getting wrong or a little bit carried away with at the moment?
1: It's a, it's a really good question. Um, well, I, I do tend to think some of the growth names um, are probably still a little bit overvalued in terms of what uh, growth characteristics they're thinking. about. I think there's a wonderful company in the tech space um, I'd love to see them 30-40% cheaper. So my mind doesn't immediately go well. This company is a short because of this reason any company that's not making generating cash is at risk of you know having its its share, you know, its equity value shrinking. Uh, and then I I do have a mindset that the consumer will change behaviour next year. So there's sort of I think there's some Real risk around some of the retailers, but I think that's a very consensus thought process for 2023. Mm-hmm. We've had this really strong, uh, aggressive interest rate shift, uh, and maybe consumer behavior hasn't changed just yet. But I think it will as we enter 2023 and they're faced with uh, higher mortgages. And you know, obviously, it's very well flagged as a, you know, fist, uh, the fixed rate mortgages are going to go back to floating. Uh, in the middle of the year, next year. So
0: people coming off uh, sub 2% interest rates facing 5% or thereabouts. Huge change. Huge change. And and what's some of the key data or things that you're looking out for to see that the, or signs that the consumer has actually rolled over? You know, we've heard um, Elliston's small cap manager recently in the press saying they're seeing lots of data that suggests that uh, you know the consumer is starting to roll over already, but what's some of the data that you're looking for?
1: Uh, I think we do a lot of anecdotal feedback as well. Um, my understanding is that probably, and Black Friday sales of, I think, will mean a lot of companies will limp through the end of the year and probably report decent results in February. I think 2020 through the second half, in a sense, is probably a surprise margin to the upside in terms of how resilient some of the spending has been. Um, but I think the behaviour is about to change. So this is more anecdotal about talking to friends, family, mm. uh, what their own thought and expectations are for next year. The Christmas hangover
0: what... where people say, okay, we've, yeah. we're, we're, we've had this revenge spending on travel. Um, yep. We've been out to all the restaurants. We've paid the exorbitant prices to travel overseas. We've done all of this. And now, now look at the... Family budget balance sheet. Uh, we 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 need to trim a, f- a few things here. Those five streaming services we acro- acquired during COVID might need to be back to one, two, or three with some interesting arguments within the family members.
1: A hundred percent. So um, I would say notionally, that should theoretically put bank earnings at probably more with more of a headwind next year. I, I note you know banks are still. Having impairment charges of four and five basis points of gross loans over forty or thirty-five years back to the sort of early nineties, um, you know the, the average impairment charge on a bank balance sheet is about thirty-five to forty basis points. So if you saw some mean reversion um, back that sort of longer-term average, and I think you've, you're seeing real uh, headwinds for the bank earnings, while I think unemployment is so low, that doesn't seem to be their risk in place while everyone's paying their mortgage. Um, So unemployment rate I think will be interesting to watch next year in terms of sentiment for where the bank's earnings may be uh, going in the next 12 or 18 months. But as we see today, I don't think there's messy risk with banks, but I think it's an asymmetric trade. Mm -hmm. I think the upside risk is far less than the downside risk on a two-year view for the bank sector. Terrific.
0: Rob, well, thank you very much for your time. It's terrific. Congratulations on what you've created there at Chester and the returns that you've been managed. Uh, you've managed to eke out. Um, I'll leave you with the last word as a guest. If there's anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, uh, now's your chance.
1: Oh, Dave, thanks for the opportunity. And I, I would say managing money on behalf of clients is a privilege, and I think we're very fortunate to do a job that we love. Uh, so Luke, Anthony, and I have done it together for ten years. And um, we look forward to doing it for another 10 years, but uh, with humility because markets are incredibly humbling most of the time. So uh, we still try to do our best, but it's a, it's a fascinating job and one I, wouldn't, uh, I would hopefully doing for another 10 or 15 years.
0: Terrific. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate your time. All the best in the future. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.